0: Hi there, welcome to Green Queen in Conversation, a podcast about the food and climate story. I'm Sonali Figueres, your host and the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen Media, where I lead all of our food and climate reporting. I'm excited to kick off this new podcast series exploring cultivated meat, a future food technology on a mission to produce animal protein sustainably. For the show's first season, we're talking to the titans of the industry, the OGs, if you will, and asking the hard questions about one of the most exciting food and climate innovations of our time. Arguably, my next guest, Dr. Mark Post, Chief Scientific Officer and co-founder of Mosa Meat, is the original pioneer. It was such a privilege to be able to speak to him, and even more so on the 10th year anniversary of when he and his team presented the first ever cultivated meat beef burger to the world. That moment really set the course for the industry and truly changed the future of food and what was deemed possible in terms of how we produce meat. Dr. Post remains one of the key voices for the industry and our conversation is full of insights, learnings, and inspiration. So have a listen and enjoy. Hi, Dr. Post, or is it okay if I call you Mark?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's fine, hi.
0: Welcome and... um, Huge congratulations on this incredibly momentous day. Um, it is August 5th, so it's 10 years after you unveiled the first cultivated uh, meatball to the world. How does that feel?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice anniversary and um, also especially good because a lot has happened since then. And the, the, the dream that we had at that time um, actually came true to a large extent
0: that's so special i mean let let's start right there are you where you thought you would be in terms of and and in terms of mosa and yourself and and also kind of the industry has do you feel the industry has progressed the way you you anticipated when you first started on this journey?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, I hadn't anticipated that by now we would have 150 or 160 companies. Uh, that was something that I I never imagined, um, and, and also not that you know our own company grew from uh, 12 people to 160 in two years' time, uh, because you know as a scientist you think about the scientific problems and not necessarily about all the other activities around it. But uh, that that has also been very rewarding to see that, and um, yes, the the uh, development has gone also in in different directions, um, so kind of uh, diverging uh, directions, which I hadn't anticipated either. So we are now seeing a range of uh, technologies and a range of product applications that. Um, I, I didn't envision in the beginning.
0: Can you share more about that? So do you mean, for example, that you know you were working on beef, but now we're seeing things like pork and chicken and seafood, or do you mean also just different kinds of supply chain technologies?
1: Yeah, both actually. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the products, uh, I mean, the, the, the species, uh, whether it's chicken or pork or fish, uh, I knew that. So I kind of expected that to happen, but that people would start already very early on trying to make a full thickness steak like uh, aleph was trying to do Um, or on the other extreme use cells as an ingredient in a mostly plant-based product Um, those those extremes well the 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 steak i had expected but not that soon Uh, the cells as an ingredient in a plant-based food i had not expected
0: interesting and what about things like cell-based milk or you know Coffee, chocolate, Did you, do you? what do you think about that? Because that's really going in another direction. That's really taking the technology and adapting it to all kinds of parts of our food system. Uh, right,
1: right, and for milk, it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, there, there, are, there, there are two technologies, and one of the technologies based on precision fermentation to make milk proteins was already there when we, well, well it was actually at the time when we presented the hamburger, um, started to become developed. Um, so that, that also made a lot of sense to me because, in the end, dairy and beef are the most damaging for the environment um, of all the animal proteins that we consume. Chocolate and uh, even wood um, and plant cells. Um, I had not. Uh, yeah, I had. Yeah, for. Well, for. I, I got a lot of questions in the beginning, you know, can you make fur? Um, because it really, the, the demand is there, the wish is there. But for uh, for chocolate and plant based um, things, it's it's really a question. You know, what's is this a um, is this a supply chain uh, uh, issue? At some point, are you going to uh, you know get um, you, you won't have enough cocoa anymore or enough uh, uh, coffee so that you need to uh, secure the supply. Or is there an environmental um, aspect? And I think the latter, not so much. You cannot really be much more efficient than a plant.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It's certainly, it must be, yeah, it must feel so rewarding to just see all the directions that your work has inspired. Um, How how did the cultivated meat uh, journey kind of become your path?
1: Oh, um, more or less by coincidence. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, no, I was already doing uh, tissue engineering for um, medical purposes, and um, at some point there was a, a guy in the Netherlands, uh, Willem van Heylen, who uh, course, yeah was already 82 or so at that at that time, uh, and he coerced a number of scientists to use their technologies to work on cultivated meat at that time called in vitro meat and i wasn't even part of the initial consortium uh, but i stepped in uh, for a sick uh, colleague and uh, so that's how i kind of enrolled in it um, and became very enthusiastic and was actually the only one who carried it through after the initial grant had um had finished
0: oh wow that's that's so interesting so someone had a sick day in your life and and the world changed forever <laughs> interesting <I know>. yeah. <laughs> um What, what have been some of your proudest moments on this journey? As you reflect on 10 years, I'm sure you must be in the middle of a lot of looking back and reassessing and reflecting.
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm usually not that reflective, but, uh, uh, (laughs) I think a couple of things I'm really happy about one, as I already mentioned that this this weird initiative to show this hamburger on international television has uh, sparked this entire endeavor with uh, so many companies and so many um, uh, activities uh, around the world. So that's, we had not anticipated that and it was a right time, a right place type of thing, I guess, um, and the right kind of, um, what is it, tone of uh, delivering this. And, you know, you, you never really uh uh can anticipate how this will work out um actually the presentation of the hamburger in london was more born out of frustration than anything else um and that um created this entire industry so that's uh, remarkable and it's also something i'm proud of because you know we we, we just did that um and um, and and not somebody else. Um, And the other thing that I'm uh, really proud of is um, the the forming of a large group of uh, scientists and other workers in a company um, that that has created a very nice atmosphere to work in, uh, very innovative people, very driven and motivated people uh, that make things happen at a much faster rate than Uh, I would have done when I would have stayed at the university so being being able to do that and of course it's not my work alone there are a lot of other people involved but having been able to do that is something that I didn't think of before that I had that in me Um, and that that worked out quite well I think.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's let's stay there for a minute because one of the things that's most interesting in cultivated meat history, if we can call it that now, is, of course, that you were the first, you and your team, to create the burger, but you didn't incorporate Mosa Meat right away. Right. Um, I think the original first company was, was formerly called Memphis Meats, now called Upside in the U.S. So how did you go from being a scientist led project in a university to you know deciding to incorporate a company and you know did you know that memphis meat had incorporated and did that influence your decision
1: Um, yeah no it was completely independent of uh, memphis or upside Um, uh, but of course we knew that they had uh, incorporated and in fact there were two delays we uh, originally after we presented the hamburger um, as you know, this was funded by Sergey Brin, and um, uh, Sergey Brin at that time said, "Okay, you know, start a business and bring this to the market in the next two years." And <laughs> right, yeah, you know, <now> it's uh, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of, I kind of frowned, I guess. And, okay, I don't think two years. I think this, there's a little bit more to it than uh, than two years to make this happen. Uh, but anyway, th- that was the that was the idea, and. So this was in 2013, um, and there were some delays. Um, I, w- I was still working at the university, and um, the, uh, the university kind of considered this a IP, an intellectual property, that was um, a property of the university. Um, so I had to deal with the university, uh, but actually also with uh, the funding uh, vehicle of Sergey Brin, um, and that that caused quite some delays. Um, so the, the the three- year delay was actually more a question of sort of external circumstances that and, and, and I guess also my inexperience with starting a business that um, uh, that caused that delay.
0: As a scientist, do you do you enjoy running a business? I mean, how we have more and more companies in this age of technology, especially in the last 20, 30 years. Where technology and business have really joined together to be this engine of innovation, we have more and more scientists and researchers heading companies, leading companies. You know, what do you think about that? Just as a scientist, do you do you enjoy the business side?
1: I I enjoy being in a business um, because I can do a lot more in a shorter time uh, with a larger crew. Um, so I. I, I find myself, uh, you know, as a kid in a candy store where uh, nowadays I can come up with a problem or a question and a week later I get a answer. Uh, whereas at the university uh, it could take like uh, three months or six months uh, because of lack of personnel and lack of um, uh, funds. Here you can do a lot more in a, a much shorter time. So as a scientist, that's wonderful. Um, and I actually feel that I'm doing more science now than i did at the university just because of the sheer volume and the speed of it parts of uh, running the business uh, i got kind of drawn into it because a lot of investors approach me and a lot of other uh, entities approach me rather than other people in the business who might be more appropriate for that Um, so i was kind of uh, uh, drawn into it and uh, there are parts of it that I really like, I like, you know, talking to people about this and convincing people that this is something that we should do. Um, so that hence talking to investors, for instance. Uh, uh, there are also aspects that, you know, I the, the, the whole organizational aspect and the structuring aspect is something that I rather leave to other people.
0: Yes. And interestingly, you do have, uh, there is someone else who's the CEO. Right, exactly. Martin, right, right. And and how does that relationship work? Do you take care more of everything to do with product and science and he takes care more of kind of organizational stuff and operations? Yeah, it,
1: it really has become uh, much more fluid than that. Um, so we, uh, together with uh, Martin, Peter and myself, we really are a team that almost uh, organically uh, distribute tasks. Um, and sometimes if uh we feel that something needs to be done but it was it's originally the task of the ceo or peter uh but i feel you know this is this is i now have the time or i can do this then and so we we are not very strict about this um uh it's it's really a a um sort of team where we can stand in for each other and can and, and of course we have um uh uh, emphasis so uh, the, the scientific part, uh, Martin and Peter are less involved in the, in the intricacies of the, the biological science than I am. so uh, naturally you draw to that and uh, Martin is much more um, uh, engaged with investors and with uh, external uh, relations. So there, yeah, there, there is a division of tasks but um, it, it's really a joint effort.
0: That sounds really wonderful um, It's been an incredible summer. For the industry, after you could say, you know, a couple of years of, of of you know slower progress, we suddenly have two U.S. regulatory approvals that are historic. We suddenly have the Dutch government saying that tastings of cultivated meat are now allowed. We now have, just recently, Aleph Farms, the you know Israeli, uh, as you the, as you mentioned, the Israeli company filing for regulatory approval in Switzerland. Right no um, notably not in brussels um do you think we're riding a wave right now is what what feels different and do you think it's going to continue
1: um you know if, if you have followed these this this development as uh, as i have obviously um it's not a surprise this was that this was coming um it it now there are now a couple of things uh, happening at the same time which is kind of a coincidence Uh, if you recall in singapore in 2020 um, the first product was approved that was kind of a a milestone and um, it's just a matter of time for a lot of those approvals coming through Um, we speak to quite a few governments um, and in in various Geographies and governments um, applications have been submitted, um, so it's a matter of time for this for these things to come through. And um, my guess is that we're just now seeing the very beginning of it, and that in the next half year and certainly next year we will see a whole flurry of these approvals in in different geographies, in uh, even in you know the Middle East, in Australia, in China, Korea, uh, Japan, uh, Europe. Um, uh, maybe, and then probably also South America, I'm, I'm less familiar with that. Um, so this is this is to be expected, and we just see the beginning of this.
0: Okay, well, let's circle back on, on the EU, um, which, you know, takes a more cautious approach when it comes to regulatory approval of what they term novel foods than other countries. You know, as, uh, you know, as a Dutch, uh, you know, pioneer, you're in the EU what do you think about that? How do you navigate that? Do you wish it were going faster? Do you understand where they're coming from? Because there's also some, there's also a lot of data to show that, you know, countries like China um, are looking to other governments, particularly the EU, to wait and see how they, you know, regulate this, because there is somewhat of a kind of understanding that the EU, you know, is cautious, and that that is a good thing overall for consumer safety.
1: Yeah, yeah, and also if you talk to larger uh, food companies, they see the EU really as a uh, sort of a, a, a sign of approval. If you get a, a sign of uh, quality, if uh, if you like, you get the right. approval there. And for sure, the EU. Not many people know that, but um, uh, already. 12, 13 years ago, they outlined very specifically and precisely um, how they would regulate cultivated meat. And this, these are documents that are public and that are used by uh, all the regulatory um, uh, officials in in other countries as a example and as a guideline for how they would look at this, uh, this approval. Um, there are always two parts of a regulatory approval process. One is the scientific part, where they, where people just look, people like me, but then um, in the, in the service of the government, uh, look at the data and the evidence that this is safe. Uh, the other part is kind of the political decision making. Uh, once it's a, once there is a recommendation of, uh, EFSA or FDA or whatever, um, there there is a. Uh, an executive decision by the government to allow it or not, to follow the recommendation of the scientific committee. Now, the scientific part is pretty much the same everywhere. Uh, And it should be because, you know, if something is safe for somebody in Singapore, it's also safe for somebody in Spain so it that that should be very very similar and the same uh the political decision making part as we know in the eu is unfortunately a lot more complex than in uh, most other countries and in a very small town state like uh, singapore it's very very easy um in a 27 member state union as the european union it's it's just hard it takes time so um and that's a pity uh there's because there's nothing related to food safety or whatever it's just a political decision
0: oh that's so interesting that so there are really two aspects to it and the science is actually quite straightforward interesting okay um but as you say it is a mark of approval europe just has that you know reputation and kind of validation so it's going to be a really important moment i mean do you want to do you want to kind of give an idea of when, of of what, do you have a timeline for when you think, you know, I'm assuming MoSA will be one of the first to apply, but do we have an idea of when the EU might grant a first approval? Oh, well,
1: uh, 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 so they take uh, a year and a half at least. So, um, and as far as I know, there have no, there have not been any applications in the EU yet. uh, Much to their, much to their disappointment. I can tell you <laughs> and understandably. Um, so th- there has not been a uh, submission yet so uh, it at least takes a, a year and a half. Uh, when the first submissions are going to be done in Europe is, is hard to say. I, I know our timeline and we um, this is, this is one of our uh, high priorities. so uh, this will be relatively soon. Um, I cannot give an exact date but it will be it will be quite soon. Where other companies stand in this regard is, is less certain. Um, a number of companies that have gotten approval now um, are um, either using a genetic modification or they are keeping the option open of genetic modification, and that complicates things in Europe. So uh, those companies that are heavily relying on genetic modification for their uh, bioprocess... Uh, they they will be very reluctant to um, uh, submit in Europe. I think.
0: Um, well, it's 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 interesting that you mentioned you see potential approvals in the Middle East. I wonder. I also wonder about Israel because it has an inordinate number of cultivated meat companies, and and of course we, there is an expectation that Singapore I, I will have more approvals yeah. potentially later this year. And and in fact, you have applied in Singapore yeah. too
1: yeah 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 for for very uh, uh, well I think most people do this for uh, uh, reasons of getting to the market soon and get, getting an idea on consumer acceptance and uh, you know how to how to market and um, of course Singapore is not a very big market but they um, they are very enthusiastic and very proactive in uh, stimulating this so yes companies obviously respond to that
0: well, you, you mentioned consumer acceptance, and that's that's a big topic that I want to dive into. Um, do you Do you believe a focus on the science and scaling production is enough? Or do you think that we also need to focus on mass behavioral change theory in the sense that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs will say to you, well, we solve the problem, which is that we give people, you know, no kale, slaughter free mm-hmm. meat and we don't worry about anything else because if you're giving them meat and it's no-kill and it's better then they will choose that no-kill meat um there have been some doubts that have been brought up around that um and i was i i was wondering how you look at that at that Kind of issue. Yeah, I'm
1: I'm very optimistic about that. Um, so I, I I have not that much doubt about this. You 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 need to have a good story and a clear story, um, and the regulatory approval actually helps in that because I think the 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 most important question that people have is is this safe or not. Throughout the years, sorry, throughout the years, we have seen a lot of change in the human um, attitude towards. Uh, uh, cultivated meat and um, similar technologies B- based on you know the realization that there is environmental impact and that it will be a scarce um, uh, uh, consumer product um, and and many other and animal welfare of course has already been for a long time kind of on the on the radar so if you can present a uh, my, my feeling is that people are really looking at a Credible alternative for meat that still allow them to um, have the same behavior, but without the the negative consequences. And even if it's not always voiced like that, you kind of feel that undercurrent of people trying to, or, or people waiting for a concept that uh, relieves their conscience um, when they are eating meat. Um, so to. You know, we don't have a term called meat shame yet, but I guess that's that's not that's mm. not far that's not uh, far away. And uh,
0: like like the flight right. shame, <laughs> like right. the Swedish word for the <laughs> flight right. shame, right? Right. Oh well, yeah, we, you should coin that in Dutch. <laughs> right. That would be great. <laughs> right. But but so it's interesting. So you're very optimistic. I that's that's so encouraging to hear. But I mean, it's it's impossible to ignore that the identity and cultural politics. Uh, brigade have come out in force around cultivated meat and really made this this very kind of hot issue in the media, using terms like lab grown in a derogatory Mm -hmm. way. And, you know, I mean, even let's let's talk about Italy, saying that they're gonna ban uh, cultivated meat, or even a few, a couple of years ago, the former French Minister of Agriculture, Jean de Normandie, he said, you know, in en France, it's no, right. you know, um, of course, now there are many French cultivated meat companies, but, <laughs> you know, how do you, you, you stay very optimistic, and, and, and of course, we should, but how, what do you make of that, of this kind of messy, controversy, that, that floats around the industry, you know, and every time there's an announcement, there's, you know, the netizen brigade that kind of makes, there, there's kind of this undercurrent for me of you're taking away people's identity by not letting them eat, you know, an animal's red-blooded meat, you know? Right.
1: Uh, I see these people as, um, I don't know how pronounces pronounce this, as uh, Don Quixote's. <laughs> there are they're 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 fighting they're fighting windmills and and basically a a, a battle that cannot be won um, this this and the the whole transition towards um, you know a, a different diet uh, but also other kind of environmental environmental issues is i think unstoppable and should be unstoppable because otherwise we're ruining this planet and so um you know you see the same thing with uh, kind of electric cars electric cars are unstoppable um in spite of uh, a lot of people who are petrol heads right um and it, it's it's for a good reason so I see this in, in kind of that same vein, um, and for sure, you know, there are a lot of people who want to stick with their old uh, kind of habits and their old cons- consumption patterns, uh, and uh, sometimes governments kind of steer, uh, kind of support that, um, uh, sticking to the to the old stuff. Um, but eventually, that's untenable. I mean, it's it's an inevitable uh, reality that we. Uh, cannot continue with meat production and meat consumption the way we have been doing, uh, considering that it's going to increase in the next uh, 15 to 20 years.
0: Well, spe- in speaking of 15 to 20 years, is what what kind of timeline do you do you do you, pl- do you have in your head in terms of getting cultivated meat to being a mass product, you know, on shelves in supermarkets? Yeah. So- at a at a affordable price. right
1: well that's that's the that's the, there are two main conditions right for a supermarket one is that the, the quality is good and the other that the price is you know maybe a little bit higher than regular meat but not much so we we see that happening in the next four or five years that that price will come down to the the price of regular meat you know assuming that the price of meat will stay stable which is somewhat unlikely i guess
0: You mean you think meat is going to get more expensive? It has
1: to. It's a very, very um, simple economic law. Uh, Production is not going to increase because we can hardly increase it. And consumption is going to increase. The demand is going to increase in China, India, and Africa, and maybe uh, some parts of uh, South America. So it's just a very simple economic law that if the demand increases and and the supply does not, the price goes up. And not not even talking about maybe that some very progressive governments may uh, may institute a uh, meat
0: tax. I was I was yeah that was going to be my next question, but that's really unpopular politically. From all the research I have yeah, looked at. yeah, it
1: is, and I, I'm actually not really in favor of it myself <laughs> because it it creates oh, some, well because it creates uh, inequality between uh, between consumers. Um, I still will be able mm. to consume meat, but, um, you know, my, um, my, um, what is it, my gardener may not, may no longer, well, my gardener actually will still, but, uh, uh, <laughs> uh no, no, <laughs> I,
0: I see where you're going, so it becomes a economic equity issue, which right. is, which is problematic, yeah,
1: which in my mind is problematic. Um, so, uh, that's. Uh, uh, unless, you know you use part of uh, you use that tax for uh, a, a lot of kind of environmental um uh, measures right if you, yeah, yeah, yeah that, 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 that you you could think about that
0: timeline of getting it on right, the supermarket right. so, so there there
1: uh, in, in addition to quality and uh price there is one other thing that is that will take time and that's just You know, starting the production capacity, Um, and if you think about this, this is a huge production capacity that you need to build. Um, So the estimation is that you have to increase current fermentation capacity in the world by a factor one and a half. Um, And uh, that may not tell you much, but if you think about the fermentation capacity, it's uh, you know beer, wine, um, uh, industrial fermentation. uh a pharmaceutical fermentation there's a lot of uh, fermentation capacity currently out there and to replace to increase that by a factor of one and a half is going to be a huge endeavor a lot of factories have to be built people have to be trained uh, so this just uh, capital has to be raised uh, this just takes a lot of time so uh, uh, you know predictions by, for instance, AT Kearney that in uh, 2030 or 2035, I can't remember, uh, we have 25% of the market uh, uh, occupied by cultivated meat, I think are pretty optimistic. But that we will eventually get there at that 25% market um, in, you know, in the next decades, um, I for sure hope because we need it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You've mentioned that time is needed. And you you mentioned that obviously we need more fermentation capacity and bioreactors. Um, What else is what else does the industry need? I mean, do we need more talent? Do is it simply that we just we need more funding? And and do you you know, I'd love to understand better uh, right now, a lot of cultivated meat. If you look at the proportions, it is definitely a lot more private sector money. Do you think there should be more public sector money in cultivated meat? Are you surprised by the ratio? Did you think more governments would give more money?
1: Um, I'm surprised and disappointed. Yeah, Um, I I have been lobbying Mm. for public funding uh, from the very beginning. Uh, Mind you, uh, before I started doing this, I was a uh, university professor and was completely dependent on public funding. Um, and and nothing else. And I see the value of that. I see the the continuity, I see the independence, um, the dissemination of knowledge, but also training of people. Um, And so there are a lot of aspects of um, uh, the cultivated meat scientific field, if you like, uh, that require public funding and you cannot rely only on on, uh, private funding. Um, So i see this as a um scientific field that will evolve and improve and expand uh, over the next uh, 30 years so that and that for sure will require um, a good base of kind of scientific activity um, training of people and and dissemination of knowledge so so yes i see a big role for public funded publicly funded research in this
0: do you do any work in encouraging younger scientists to get into the field of cultivated meat? I mean, do, do, is talent a concern at all?
1: Scientific talent, not so much. We okay. may be somewhat exceptional because of the, uh, sort of the, the public, uh, the publicity. Uh, so we get, if, if we, we actually never really um, advertise a, a job opening. We just put it on the web and we get applicants from all over the world. Uh, wow. People who really, and sometimes people apply five times because they really want to work in this field. Um, so we don't really have that, have that issue. Um, what will become a issue is uh, once you, you have those factories, um, you need a lot of people who are um, trained to operate bioreactors um, and, and be working in that part of the food industry um and that will require um indeed uh, specific training systems to, uh, to to get there or yeah, okay, or well, or a that's... retraining of people from other industries
0: well exactly where i was going next because one of the biggest you know criticisms that is lobbied at all of the alternative protein and food technologies is you know what about farmers How do we better involve them? Farmers are the bedrock of our agricultural system all over the world. They have difficult lives. They often do not see the upside of the big food companies' billions. Um, What does the future look like for them? And I mean, you you mentioned that we're gonna need all this new um, training, retrained population to help operate these bioreactors. Is that something that we could retrain farmers to do? Uh, Do you think about farmers in the future and how we, you know, redirect their their skills?
1: Well, believe it or not, we think about farmers a lot, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and uh, yeah, no, it's true, Um, and uh, have been doing this for. Pretty much right after the the presentation of the hamburger, because obviously you get the questions. Um, I also, uh, you know, I, I live in a in a more or less a farming community. Uh, my neighbor is a farmer, um, so uh, we think about this a lot. And if you, well, first of all, um, you know, farmers are entrepreneurs, so they they go where they can make money um, off the land, um, and of course the cells that we culture also need to be fed. Um, So it it will a lot of farmers, if they are now cattle farmers or dairy farmers, will eventually change their way of farming, uh, still uh, extracting value from their land. And uh, they require time to make that transition that time is there. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, it's going to take a couple of decades so they can transition to that. Uh, my my neighbour is actually a good example because he used to be a pig farmer um, and um, he switched to potatoes. Why? Because he could make more money with potatoes than with pig farming. Um, and that's the essence of a farmer. It's an entrepreneur who extracts value from the land. Um, and they they can still do that uh part of it um, we hopefully we will eventually over decades require less farmland uh because we take uh, a lot of the inefficiencies out of the food system that we typically called animals and then we require less uh less farmland and less uh farming and this is a, a good thing i guess if you look at um you know the 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 um, number of farms for instance in the netherlands where i am uh, living uh, that number is steadily going down uh, less and less people are interested in taking up the farming business um uh, apparently it's just not appealing enough for young people
0: okay yeah i mean that tends to be happening a lot in the developed economies but less so in regions like asia and South America and Africa. Right. But that
1: may be a matter of time. Right. Um, And uh, the the other thing that you see is that uh, the farming becomes more and more industrialized. Um, The farmer now in the Netherlands is more like an organizer than actually somebody who uh, puts a spade in the ground.
0: Interesting. Um, As you look ahead, what are your major goals for MOSA for the next five years? What what do you want the company to achieve in the kind of near shorter term? You know, we've talked a lot about bigger timelines for cultivated meat, but for MOSA specifically, what's on the yeah?
1: Ticket? Well, it, obvious like like for any other company, um, uh, scale up production, get regulatory approval. But but most foremost is to um, have a high quality product on the market that is. A lot better than any of the current alternatives for meat, so that it can fill that void um, of of meat alternatives. Um, We see, and this is somewhat of a concern, that um, uh, plant based meat alternatives are kind of uh, plateauing, Um, Mm -hmm. and um, it's it's good to you know to analyze what is happening here. But uh, I cannot. I, I, I I think that. Part of it is that people just want to have meat, um, and that the meat alternative has to be meat and, and nothing else. So, the, the foremost goal of the company is to create a high-quality alternative that is sufficiently credible for consumers to change their behavior away from a traditional meat.
0: And what's the format that it's taking? Your first product? Are you doing a ground
1: beef? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's beef and it's ground because we, we, you know, as a tissue engineer, I love to work on a uh, full thickness steak. (laughs) As a uh, as a a practical person, I see that this is has more challenges and will take longer to uh, realize.
0: Do you ever consider that some of your production will be elsewhere in the world than the Netherlands? Or are you right now focused specifically on most of your scaling up to happen in the Netherlands?
1: From the very beginning, we wanted to roll this out to the rest of the world as soon as possible. So it's not only, um, you know, if if we uh, or one, when we have the sort of the full production capacity available, uh, we will license this out to as many third parties in the world as we can, um, uh, based on the philosophy that we want to make impact and not um, not you know necessarily grow the largest. Uh, meat factory in the world.
0: Okay, so there's sort of like a franchise production model yeah. here. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, my last question is really more of a—it's a, a bigger question. It's you know what what does success look like to you?
1: It's it's exactly that um, having high quality hamburgers rolling off the conveyor belt at a reasonable price <laughs> that people want.
0: <laughs> I see it in my mind. I can't right. wait.
1: The uh, but by the way, we were, do- we we're doing the same, uh, we haven't talked about that, but we we're doing the same for leather, which is uh, equally um, interesting and important, um, and much less people are working on that.
0: Meat is working no, no, on no, leather? No, it's
1: a different company, but it's, I'm, I'm founder and chief scientific officer of that company as well.
0: Oh, is, is it in stealth or have you announced?
1: uh it's not necessarily in stealth it just got a lot less publicity than uh, than Moza Meat. The, the company is called corium with uh, with a q um and um yeah so it's a it's another thing um i'm working on
0: so that's also part of your next five years and your yeah. dreams
1: yeah <laughs> same thing sheets that's of that's, letter, that's wonderful she's a letter coming mean. from uh, coming off the conveyor belt yeah
0: you know, because one of the biggest problems we have today, especially uh, if you're, for example, a vegan or an ethical animal welfare-driven consumer, your choice is either leather, which is a is a difficult choice, and usually you avoid it, or your choice is plastic, yeah. which unfortunately is is absolutely not better. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So you you are, essentially you have no choice.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. So and and. You know, making leather is slightly easier than making meat. Um, but yeah, it's okay. um, it, 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 there for sure will be, there will be a market for that, and fashion industry is really looking forward to this. Um, and I, I do realize, I mean, that a lot of leather alternatives for uh, shoes and for wearing uh, wearables is is not, not really, they are not really good alternatives for it,
0: quite as well. No they're all mixed with plastic and then they don't biodegrade and then we're back to the same right. problem in terms of right. waste. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, oh, that's so interesting. Okay, well, thank you for for sharing that and there's you're solving so many problems. Thank you so much for your time and a huge congratulations on an incredible decade of progress for yourself, your company, but also for for humanity. What, what a journey. Uh, yeah, yeah, it
1: was, it's quite fun. Yes, <laughs> and rewarding. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Green Queen in Conversation is a co-production from Green Queen Media and Cheeky Monkey Productions. This episode was produced by Joanna Bowers and hosted by me, Sonali Figueres.